looking at Hebrews chapter 10. Before I read the passage, let me tell you the, the story of a young and faithful woman. She's the daughter of a knight, and she became convinced in the 16th century of what the Bible teaches. She became so convinced that it was a message that everyone needed to hear that when the king forbade the reading of the Bible by commoners, she actually went to her nearest town and publicly read the scriptures. I know some women who are like that in this church. Anna Skew traveled then to London in 1544, and in 1545, she was arrested for heresy. In 1546, she was placed in the Tower of London. Now, in Newgate Prison, before being transferred to the Tower of London, she was asked to sign a confession that said that during the Lord's Supper, the priest actually sacrificed Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. And she refused. Instead, she wrote a confession, and she ends her confession by signing it, written by me, Anne Askew, that neither wisheth death nor feareth his might, and as Mary, as one that is bound towards heaven. At her very last trial, she was again asked whether or not she would recant her views about the Lord's Supper. The law actually required that you said that it was a sacrifice of Jesus. She refused. She said, for the same Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, is now glorious in heaven and will come again from thence at the latter day. So she was sent to the Tower of London. And there she was tortured so ferociously that the lieutenants of the tower refused to let the, to do the torture anymore. He went to the king personally to say, we cannot, she's undergone to, too much. But the Lord Chancellor of England himself, assisted by another knight, continued to torture her and remained defiant. She never recanted. She never gave up the names to the king's men of the other Protestants who were trusting in her secrecy. But she was so weak from the torture that they had to carry her to the stake when it came time in July 1546 to burn her to death. I mention this because it's easy to think that the passage in Hebrews chapter 10 before us can never get you in trouble with anybody, but I want you to know it can get you burned at the stake. It teaches us clearly and directly that we cannot add to the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. If we try to do so, it is an offense to the cross of Christ. If Jesus has done everything for us, then we have done nothing and we can do 
nothing. Now, with this uh, admonition, let's turn to the passage. Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read verses 11 to 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying... This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Lord, you have placed before us your holy scripture to teach us, to guide us, and to correct us. And Father, so often we turn aside from the glories of heaven to the mundane things of this earth. And we pray for just the briefest moment of our lives we would focus carefully on the passage before us and that you would do great work in all our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, to understand Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 18, we need to consider three things. First, the logic of the argument about forgiveness. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on that, the logic of the argument about forgiveness. Number two, the Lord who accomplished this forgiveness. And finally, number three, the life of forgiveness that we live out. So the logic of the argument, the Lord who accomplished forgiveness, and finally, the life of forgiveness. So first, let's consider the logic of the argument. If you look down, we're going to start kind of bizarrely uh, near the end with verse 17. If you look down there, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's step one of our argument. There is now forgiveness of sins. To say that the Lord doesn't remember our sins is not to say that he's forgotten them because he can't forget anything. It's to say that he doesn't count them against us. He has forgiven us. Step one. Well, what's step two in the argument? We see it in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, that is sins and lawless deeds, there's no longer any offering for sin. So that's step two. If there is forgiveness of sins, then no other offering is needed. Well, those who had me in logic at JVU are breaking out in hives at the flashbacks that they're getting. But let's just follow the logic. There's forgiveness of sins. 
if there's forgiveness of sins, then there's no need for any other offering. What can you conclude? No other offering is needed. And that's exactly what our author does in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. If earlier in this chapter, our author has the Day of Atonement in mind, within verse 1, the high priest offering a sacrifice every year, now he has in mind the daily offerings of the priests, offered morning and evening. And notice in verses 11 to 14 how active these priests are, especially in contrast to Jesus. Verse 11, they are working. Where's Jesus? Verse 13, he's waiting. They are standing, verse 11. But Jesus is sitting, verse 12. They offer many sacrifices, verse 11, but he offers only one, verse 12. They offer these sacrifices repeatedly, verse 11, but he offers himself only once, verse 12. Most importantly, their sacrifices can never take away sins, verse 11. But his one sacrifice for sins in verse 12, what? Perfected his people for all time, verse 14. So notice the genius in the author of Hebrews here. The very thing that makes the priests look so impressive, their repeated offerings, all the work that they're doing, is evidence against them that what they're doing can ultimately not solve our problem. The very fact that they keep offering sacrifices is an admission that their sacrifices don't take away sins. By contrast, Jesus offers himself once and the work is done. So let's be clear. Step one of the argument. There is now forgiveness. We see this in verse 17. Step two from verse 18. If there's now forgiveness, then no other offering for sin is needed. And so what's the conclusion? No other offering for sin is needed. Why is no other offering for sin needed? Verse 14, for by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I emphasize this point because we need to think about the busy priests. What work are they doing? Well, their work, we see it in verse, verses 11 to 13, is vain and worthless. But it's even worse than that. It's an offense to God. Anna Skew was burned at the stake for daring to say that priests do not offer sacrifices because she understood the logic of forgiveness. There is now forgiveness... If there's now forgiveness, no other sacrifice for sin is needed. Well, what happens if you say that, no, that there is another sacrifice for sin that's needed? What's the logical result? 
is that there's now no forgiveness. To understand this point, let's turn to some contemporary examples. If you got the scholarship, you don't have to pay tuition. You got the scholarship. Conclusion? You don't have to pay tuition. Well, what happens if I see you paying tuition? It tells me that you didn't get the scholarship. If you are single and under 65 and made less than $10,350, you didn't have to file an income tax return. Well, let's say you're single and under 65 and made less than $10,350 last year. Guess what? You don't have to file an income tax return. But if you had to file an income tax return and you're single and under 65, then guess what? I know that you made more than $10,350 last year. Now, you know, some students of mine are having rashes that they're uh, back in logic class. Maybe you're worried that you've wandered into introduction to accounting. But this logic is crucial. Anna Skew set her life on it. She would rather die than say that an, uh, another sacrifice for sin was needed. If you're paying tuition, you didn't get the scholarship. If you're filing an income tax return, then you made more than $10,350 last year. And if another sacrifice for sin is needed, then there is now no forgiveness. So what's at stake is not some trifling practice, some show that we could tolerate or not. What's at stake is the gospel. Around the world, the Lord Jesus Christ is having glory robbed from him because people think that they need his sacrifice of 2000 years ago and a little something else. They need the sacrifice of Jesus for sin and their own effort. They need the sacrifice of Jesus for sin and the prayers of the saints. They need the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins and a new priestly sacrifice. But if we keep doing these things, then we rob Jesus of his glory. If it's right that we need Jesus and something else to get forgiveness, then we don't have forgiveness now. But that's in contrast to what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. Precisely because, verse 12, Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the Lord can say in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So let's let zeal for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ consume us. Let's be very careful about what we think, about what we do for the Lord. And let's avoid anything, anything that makes us think that somehow we have earned or can possibly earn his favor. We have not. And we cannot. If you think we just sang a moment ago, uh, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. If you think that you have gifts or power or wisdom 
to boast in before the Lord Jesus, then you do not understand what Christ did for you. If you understand the logic of forgiveness, then you will glory in the cross and nothing else. The logic of forgiveness says, don't you dare look to anyone or to anything else but Jesus, because he has done the work to secure your forgiveness already. That's the logic of forgiveness. Now let's consider the Lord who accomplished forgiveness. Who does the work to make things right? Well, the three persons who accomplish your forgiveness are not you, God, and the priest. The three persons who accomplish your forgiveness are God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father. Look at verse 12. Where is Jesus now? He sat down at the right hand of God. And what is Jesus doing at the right hand of the Father? He's waiting, verse 13. He's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The reference here is to Psalm 110, verse 1. And Psalm 110, verse 1 reminds us not only that Jesus has enemies who will be beaten, but there is someone saying to Jesus, you wait there and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who is speaking? God, the Father, the Almighty. We heard just a moment ago, I, I don't re- remember if you, I don't know if you remember it, but we heard just a moment ago the assurance of pardon from Colossians chapter 1. It's a lovely passage. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is the he in Colossians chapter 1? Who is the he who has delivered us? Paul makes it clear in the previous verse when he tells us to give thanks to the Father. We just read from John chapter 7 when the Lord Jesus is talking to people in the temple. He says, I am doing the will of him who sent me. This is a constant refrain in the Gospel of John. Jesus says it in John chapter 4. That he seeks to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. John chapter 5. Jesus is doing the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. And what is the work that the Father entrusted the Son to accomplish? It is the forgiveness of your sins. So friends, let's not think that Jesus is trying to persuade a begrudging, ungracious, and unmerciful father to love you in spite of himself. On the contrary, long before creation, he chose us in love. 
The evidence of the Father's love for you is that the Son would be sent to die for you. God the Father. What about God the Son? Of course, God the Son receives no small amount in the book of Hebrews. In fact, if you uh, wanted three little words to describe the entire book of Hebrews, the three little words are Jesus is better. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels. Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus is better than Joshua. And then from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14, all the way past the passage before us to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22, Jesus is better than the priests. He's better than any actual or pretend priests. It's very important for the author of Hebrews for us to know. He spends seven chapters of a 13 chapter book on Jesus being better than any other priest. And we've seen why. It's because of the logic of forgiveness. If Jesus, our high priest, offers the sacrifice of himself for our sins, then verse 17, the Lord can look on us and say, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the great message of Hebrews is that our high priest finished his work. Sure, there are other priests who are doing some fancy show, but our Lord Jesus is seated at the right hand of his father. And because Jesus is a better priest, your sins are now forgiven. God the Son. Finally, God the Holy Spirit. This argument that I'm making, the author is telling us, all the way back from Hebrews chapter 4 to here in chapter 10, isn't something that I'm making up. I'm not trying to work the history of Jesus into the Old Testament. It's something that if you were a careful student of the Old Testament, this is exactly what you would expect. As he says in verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Well before Jesus was ever born, God had a plan to do something new. Now this is actually the second time that our author appeals to Jeremiah chapter 31. The first time was in chapter 8, when he wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus was doing a new work. This time in Hebrews chapter 10, our author is explaining what this new work is about. It's a new work, yes, and it's a new work, what? So that we get new hearts and new minds, and most wonderfully, our sins are Forgiven, And our sins, notice at the end of verse 17, the work of Jesus has an everlasting, always and forever significance. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God will forgive us not for a season, but forever. Now, let's be clear, this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 could not be fulfilled by a bunch of priests continually offering sacrifices. 
We've seen this with the logic of forgiveness. If we still need sacrifices to be offered, then we have no forgiveness of sins. So the only way that the Lord can say in verse 17 is, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more, is if there is one perfect sacrifice who has done the work. And the very thing that Jesus did is something that the Holy Spirit promised he would do. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have accomplished your forgiveness. God himself has done the work of your redemption. You then are not, to play off the poem Invictus, you are not the master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. You are either a slave to another, or you have been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus, set free from him, set free by him, and you belong to him. You, friends, cannot make yourselves right with God. God must make you right with him. You cannot make God love you. He loves you already. You are the author of your sin. He is the Lord who accomplished your forgiveness. The Lord who accomplished your forgiveness. Finally and briefly, we have before us in this passage a life of forgiveness. As we've seen, the Lord has accomplished forgiveness outside you. And that's true. But even though the work of forgiveness has been accomplished outside you, there is still work inside you that must continue. We see this in chapter 10, verse 14, when the author says that by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Notice the present tense. There's still work to be done. We still need to grow in holiness. We have room for moral improvement. God the Holy Spirit must work in our hearts so that we die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. And that work that the Lord does in our hearts day by day, week by week, and year by year is in contrast to the work that Jesus has already done for us. Verse 14, if you look at it again, describes the activity of Jesus also in the the perfect tense. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Jesus has already accomplished the work of your Forgiveness, and he is now doing work in you, making you better and better. So there's forgiveness, and then there's living in the life of forgiveness. In theological language, the Christian has been justified and is now being made sanctified. We are growing in holiness. We've been declared right with God 
because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and his perfect life of obedience. And we are also wonderfully and mysteriously being made more like Jesus. This point's important because let's be clear. We want some kind of response to the continued presence of sin in our lives. But Hebrews chapter 10 makes very clear that the response to continued sin in our lives cannot be another sacrifice. The logic of forgiveness is too tight and too clear for that. If I sin, and believe me I do, then I, if I say, oh, but now I'm going to make it right with this sacrifice, I'm offending against the Lord Jesus, who made the one perfect sacrifice in my place. But there is still an appropriate response. We see this in verse 14. He's made perfect. He's declared us right with God. Who? who? For whom has he done this? Those who are being sanctified, who are still struggling. So we have a response, but the response to continued sin is not a pathetic attempt at sacrifice, but instead it's sincere repentance. Lord, I'm sorry. And heartfelt prayer. Lord, help me. Change me. Notice that verse 14 does not say that Jesus died for a perfect people. Verse 14 doesn't even say that he died for sinful people and made them instantly holy. Verse 14 says that he died for a people who still need work. They still need to be sanctified. We need more and more of verse 16. God of the Holy Spirit working God's law in our hearts, writing God's law on our minds. And growing in holiness is painful and frustrating, but it is also inevitable. Because the Lord Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the way we are. He's purchased our forgiveness. And he is slowly, patiently, but doggedly making us like himself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're the lover of our souls. Thank you that we can fly to you. Lord, thank you that you care for us in ways that we can't even begin to understand. Heavenly Father, thank you that you loved us. That you loved us before we could speak, talk, walk. That you love us in spite of ourselves. That you delight in us because you care for us. And thank you that you died for us, Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you are making us like yourself through the work of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, work in our hearts. Do this work 
for the glory of your great and awesome name. Amen.